Hello and welcome to episode 28 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Man, I feel like I have really big shoes to fill after Riley last week. He did an awesome interview with us. I'm so appreciative of him coming on the show. Shoes in Australia are different than shoes in America, and shoes in the UK as well. So you have to get his size to know, you know, what to fill. Well, as the only one of us that has actually been to Australia, I can tell you, big <laughs> shoes down under. <laughs> but he's in Scotland now. They wear like wood shoes and such, right? Even bigger shoes in Scotland. <laughs> and sometimes they coat them in in sausage and then deep fry the shoes. I don't know. I heard that. <laughs> is, a, is that a Scotch shoe? Yep. Also with me here in Chicago, the sausage king of the Midwest, Dave Harburger. I'm back from island time. Island boy, you're back. I've ascended. I'm a. I'm now a full blue mage because I've spent some time on the island. Uh, yuck, yuck, yuck. You look like you've tasted alligator. Not this time, but we did see one in the back the backyard of the house we were staying in, so we couldn't let the kids outside because we didn't want anybody to get eaten. Well, you know what Stan always tells me? Stan always tells me their jaw muscles opening are much weaker than their jaw muscles that close. Mm. I'll remember that next time. This alligator that was behind our house was ten, like 10 feet long. It was like 9 or 10 feet long. It was oh, a 10 huge, footer? huge animal. That does you not could, affect its mouth it. strength. Yeah, not one iota. Last but not least, lights out in cell block C. It's the warden, Zach Colhan. I'm not here for a good time. I'm here for a long time. <laughs> that's that's like my life motto love it on this week's show we break down some recent mtgo results then dive into some of the new decks making a splash with modern horizon cards in the latest installment of sleeve believe heave then we wind down with some self-reflection but first some housekeeping as always we're excited to shout out some of our newest patrons big thanks to ron d daniel b hugo b shane c Tony M and Keith N. Oh wait, there's other Shanes. Other oh, Shanes, and they're local. Even local Shanes near you want to meet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, though, all you new patrons and existing patrons, you're all amazing. We're so grateful for the support you provide our show. And if you'd also like to support the podcast and you're not currently a patron, you can check us out at Patreon.com/slash/TheDiveDown. Yeah, we just posted a poll on our tokens that we're going to have made up real soon now that we hit our $200 per episode stretch goal. So yeah, and the next one, we'll be making our playmats for the $12 and above Patreons. I still can't believe that there's actually $12 and above Patreons, but somehow there are, and uh, they will be getting some Patreon-only playmats made in just a little bit as long as we reach that next stretch goal. We're so close. I can see it. Yeah, there's a little thing on the Patreon page. <laughs> that bar just keeps yeah, moving. I can see it. <laughs> it's right in the lower, lower left-hand corner of the page. All right, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Zach at the news desk. So we're going to be going over two MTGO events, the Modern MCQ as well as the Modern Premier League. Is it, sorry, is it the Premier League? So it's, I, That's I a think soccer what I, thing. What I heard this posted uh, was, a, was, a, it was a Mitko Modern Playoffs. So, you know, one of, one of those things that probably gets you to, like, the finals that happen, you know, some number of months apart. Who knows how these modern online things, magic online things work. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. You can decide what you want to call it. 
Yeah, it has a very descriptive name on Magic the Magic's uh, webpage of Modern Event. (laughs) 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 So an event took place. Yes, I played in Modern Event. So the top eight for the MTGO Modern MCQ, first place was Jund. So hey. Whoa. Uh, This one was running two Renin 6 main board, two seasoned pyromancers in Unearth, and then a couple of plague engineers in the side. So a stock full, you know, of new cards. Seven totals was looking like. So that's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, this list looks sweet. It looks pretty tuned. I like... It looks like it's just ready to handle anything that comes its way. I mean, Jund always has to be able to draw the cards that matter when it needs it, but I think that this build looks like it can handle an awful lot of variables, especially with the sideboard, with, like, Collector Oof. You know, Jund now has a Stony Silence effect, which it didn't have before. It's one of the big reasons to run something like Obzon. And when you have Leyline of the Voids and Collector Oof, you essentially have the important parts of a deck like Obzon besides Path to Exile. But there's so much removal now, too. It's like, who needs Path? Yeah, I really like Season Pyro as an additional way to get through the deck. And hitting that off of a Bloodbraid Elf seems incredible. Yes, it does. Especially when you're empty-handed and you don't have to discard anything. And you Bloodbraid Elf into Season Pyromancer and then all of a sudden have two more cards in your hand. Yeah, what an insane chain of events i think we're going to talk a lot more about season pyromancer later in, in other segments so let's uh let's keep it moving absolutely second place was blue eye control with what i would call almost the stock list at this point there's a few interesting one ofs here and there but it's pretty close to what i see a lot of list running third we have hogak fourth is is it phoenix with three mainboard aria flame who's ready to apologize i'm sorry i'm not sorry I... <laughs> yeah that's yeah it's 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 a it's a good card Fifth, we have Green Black the Rock with one main deck plague engineer. Sorry. Fifth, we have Green Black the Rock with one main deck plague engineer, and then three in the sideboard. So a full playset of plague engineer in this deck. Yeah, this this card's good. I mean, we said as much in the set review, but you know, I really think this card's going to be around in black based you know decks like this from now on, either main deck or sideboard. It just does a lot of work. It's everywhere. It's in, it seems to be in the sideboard of like every deck that I looked at over the weekend. It's totally <laughs> wild. Yeah, I think um, tribal decks are quote-unquote on the rise with the injection of cards from Modern Horizons and definitely coming up with M20. So I think that this card just gets a little better. As I'll talk about later, this card definitely blew me out more than once in the games I played. Is this card just good against Hogak because you name zombies and then they can't make any creatures? But they're tutus. I guess not. <laughs> It takes longer for them to mill you out. Yeah. (laughs) Slightly, I guess. And in seventh, we have maybe the spiciest list of the lot with Esper Mentor. So I will pass this to our own Mentor Master, Shane Beeps. Yeah, I'm super hyped that Monastery Mentor and Esper Esper Mentor is back. I mean, you might recall me a number of episodes ago talking about how Esper Mentor was like my first real modern deck. And I guess the last four and a half years, or maybe just like the last month or so, have treated the deck pretty well. I love seeing, you know, Teferi 3, Unearth, Force of Negations, some sideboard Narsets, really seeming to turn this deck back into a force, or maybe making it into a force you reckon with for the first time ever in its history. So we'll see if Monastery Mentor sticks around. But um, I, I actually played against this deck in one of my leagues, and it was pretty sweet. Yeah, I'm actually really hopeful that this deck is going to stick around too, and it's uh, because of a new linchpin card from Modern Horizons that uh, I think we're going to talk about a little bit more, and that card is Unearth. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, we we were a little hard on Earth, I think. But we'll talk about that uh, later, too. I don't think yep. I was hard on Earth. There's also uh, four Yixilid, 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 Jailers Yixilid. <laughs> in, in the sideboard. Which uh, I saw a lot of people testing them at LGS over the weekend. It seems to be the hot new tech these days. A lot of people testing this? That's crazy. Oh, oh well, yeah. Two no, people is... who went up to me and showed me them, and that's a lot to me. I, don't, I know like five people, so. <laughs> five people who aren't on this podcast? Yeah, no, I know five people, including you three. I know, I know my girlfriend and my mom were the other people. They were asking you about their Yixilid jailers. How, how many? Your mom was like, Zach, how many Yixilid jailers should I have on my sideboard? And you're like, and Mom, like, don't, get caught up, don't get caught up in the hype. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, they're going to drop. Pick them up in a few months. Mom, it's, it's, a, your, it's your LGS metagame. There's only going to be one or two Hogak players. Don't worry about it. So why do you guys think that a deck that can produce white mana would run this over Rest in Peace? On the one hand, I can see that she beats down, but Yixilid Jailer is pretty easy to kill. I think that Hogak runs more enchantment-based removal than it does creature-based removal. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't consider that till right now. I don't think they run any really creature removal side of Lightning Axe. I mean, they have like Dark Blast sometimes, which would tag a Yixla Jailer, so it's not the best thing in the universe. But yeah, more or less, I think that they probably are bringing in, or they probably have more ways to remove an enchantment, but I could be wrong there. That's an interesting point. What a world where creatures are more resilient than enchantments. I, I also think there's probably a minor synergy with Unearth mm-hmm. here, where if they do kill it, you can bring it back. Yeah, and it's also so, better in multiples, too. Huh. Yeah. Makes you think. Then finally, closing out the top eight, we have Affinity, which is a pretty stock list running the Frenzied Experiment. Yeah, Experimental Frenzy is dope. Um, so I just want to point you all to the fact that the second most played card in the top 32 of this tournament was Leyland of the Void. 53 copies. The only, in the top 32? The, yeah, the top 32 decks of the tournament. And the, the, the only Faithless Looting was more with 60 copies in the top 32. Yikes. Okay. <laughs> huh. Huh. That's a, that's, a, that's a perfectly fine metagame. Thanks, thanks for the reprint incoming Wizards of the Coast, finally. The price is still actually going up back a, <laughs> for up a now. little bit. Yeah, for <laughs> now. Because people are like, gosh, I need these cards for any tournament I play. Um, there are seven Hogak decks in the top 32 as well. This is reassuring. No, it's not. I'm scared. I'm very scared. Yeah, well, let's talk more about some Hogak in the in the modern playoffs. Yeah, so next we're going to talk about the MTGO Modern Premiere, the Modern Event. Once again, there'll be a link in the show notes. You can it's, make your own Modern Event. Oh, you also played in the Modern Event? Fellow human, I see you too have Modern Legal Cards. Where were you on June 23rd, 2019? It is Modern <laughs> Event Saturday, my dudes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like those alien, those alien comics. So first place, we have Blue Control, and this is actually the same person who got second in the last event we talked about, running the same exact 75. What's their Congrats. Magic Online name? Doom Switch. Oh, yeah, me and Doom Switch go way back. Well, well done, Doom, Doom Switch. Yeah, so Doom Switch got first place in this and second place in another just wow that's some true grinding and they're on the eight planeswalker plan and I, which i think is sort of just stock at this point more narcissists than jace's into fairies didn't you just say that wow. jace is up to 150 bucks now i saw that on goldfish today yeah wow in second place we have esper mentor with the identical 75 to the previous list but a different pilot right, putting up results again maybe has some legs in third place we have uh maybe a newcomer to the scene an evolution of previous decks we have Black White Midrange, which almost plays like a Black Devotion deck. Uh, Gray Merchant of Asphodels here, also known as Gary, makes his triumphant return to modern. Triumphant return? 
<laughs> He's never sold um, his wares to anybody hmm. in the modern in the modern. People have cast before, Gary against me. Yeah, I, I guess at one point I think Black Devotion might have been a more viable than, or at least played than it was now, I guess is what I'm saying I remember there. when we all looked at Gift, Gifted Aetherborn and we're like, man, I can't wait for this modern staple to start seeing some play. I actually think that that card has been, had some modern playability written on it for a while. No, it's sick. But, yeah. I think it will play, be played in uh, Vampires when that deck eventually coagulates into a deck. That's my favorite map in Halo 2. Nice. <laughs> Blood joke. <laughs> this deck is wild. It is not right. running any Leyline of the Void. It's running four Rest in Peace and no Leyline of the Void. There's like crazy. no new cards in this deck. Um, there's a Kaya's Guile, correct? And a Singleton Force of Despair sideboard. Why not? Sure, why not? I also noticed that Anguish and Making is like creeping up a little bit. Like I saw it on like some photos of buy lists at the GP Seattle, like Anguish and Making is not a super cheap card anymore or something like that. So maybe people think that Black-White has some has some legs. Yeah, I think the card was, if not exactly pushed for Modern, not unplayable in Modern, and there just wasn't a, a shell or the shell had better answers. But if you're only in Black-White, I mean, why not? Oh, I was just going to say, Shane, you were asking for a Vindicate last week. I mean, yeah. the a- Anguish I mean, on Making is Vindicate, except it can't get rid of a land, right? Yeah, that's a big difference, but... In fourth and fifth, we have Hogak lists, which are pretty similar to one another. I think, I don't know if the perfect list or the ideal list has been figured out, but people are seemingly agreeing on what to run. That's what's, I heard it on a different podcast. I think it was a arena deck list. They were saying like, this deck just stomps and the list is not even close to the final form. Yeah, Riley made the comment yeah. last episode too. Oh yeah. Maybe it was Riley. Yeah, you heard, maybe it was our you podcast. heard that on our podcast. Man, I, the hit podcast, uh, <laughs> the dive down? With special guest Riley Knight. In sixth place, we have a spicy Mardu Pyromancer mm-hmm. build featuring uh, Yogmoth Thran Physician. Yeah, this deck is is interesting, and I, I actually piloted it some, so we're going to talk about that during Sleeve Believe Heave. Um, is this the Octomancer deck? This is the Octomancer deck? deck. I think we might as well just call it Mardu Pyromancer because it really is the same deck as, as Mardu. It's not, uh, it's not really a new deck. It's just even better. Sure. Pyromancer Tribal. Yeah, Pyromancer Tribal now. <laughs> I mean, the super interesting thing about this is that this has four copies of Smiting Helix main. Four. Right, which is a card that we did not did believe, believe in. Did not believe in it, no. I gave it a B- and identified Mardu Pyrotech for the most obvious call of all time. Yep. It's like, hey, guess what? This card is, is Mardu Colors, and it's, it has a flashback ability on it, so... It's good if you discard it. Yeah, sometimes discarding cards can be good. I guess I'd never once thought about the synergy with Season Pyromancer. Mm-hmm. I I feel like we um we had a hard time looking for like interset synergies like Unearth and Night Ranger stuff like that where it's oh the cards that are being printed together might be good together. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting like that you mentioned that. Dementia. Because I do feel like there's a little bit of kind of like deck packs inside the set. Like, you, right. like you're saying where it's kind of like, hey, these three cards were printed to be played together. And these three cards were definitely printed to be played together too. Like Lava Dart and Aria of Flame. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're just kind of like, okay, we're getting free, more free triggers. 
In seventh, we have an Esper Shadow List, and this is running a single Hex Parasite as a target for Ranger, and I lost a game to someone getting a Hex Parasite at the exact right moment. I think that's a cool card, I think this is a really cool deck. We were talking about this in the Dive Down Nation Slack channel today, and uh, one of one of our one of the members of the nation pointed out that Hex Parasite is cool for kind of two pieces of tech. One is it kills Planeswalkers. And the other thing is that you can trigger it and make yourself lose life to make your death shadows faster or larger fast. If you need to suddenly make it go from make yourself go from ten life to six life to be able to pump up your your death shadow, that's that's a way that you can do it. Yeah, instant speed too. So you can have some tricky combat steps if someone's not ready. Yeah. And you don't need a target to pull that off because the card reads remove up to X counters from target permanent. So you can hit any permanent, even a land, but they don't actually even need counters in the first place to use this effect. Exactly. And then bring up the rear. Who's that? Who's the conductor of this train? Oh, it's Hogak. Where's Necropolis? Oh my gosh. So you guys think this deck is real or what? There are three in this top eight. And then in the last wrist... In the last list we read, there were two in that top eight. You think this and... deck has legs? I don't know. <laughs> Seems okay. Mm. Is this the real it's, deal? Uh, well, in this one especially, um, a Reddit user, DNX Crypto, he did a nice post, some fast analysis of the modern playoffs data. The rest of the top 16 was five Hogax, so that was 50% of the top 16. Uh, and then there was an Urza, Thopter, Sword, Grixis, Midrange, and a Tron deck in the top 16, along with what Zach read. There, was, there were 51 graveyard hate pieces over the non eight non-Hogak decks. So there's like 50 grave hate pieces in a Chalice of the Void out of Tron. An average number of graveyard hate pieces of 6.4 per deck. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. And like, and, and still, it's fighting through just fine. So, whew. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that given the pervasiveness of it, that people are even managing to find their way through, through the deck to be able to win against it. Because it's it does you know it doesn't like have a super crushing win percentage, but it it didn't win either of these events. I'll be curious to see what happens at like SCG Pittsburgh. Uh, in next week or so with the team tournaments where people have been saying on podcasts and on Twitter that maybe they're going to take three Hogak decks and just go Hogak A, Hogak B, Hogak C, and um, oh, wonder yeah. how many of those matchups we're going to have over the weekend. Yeah, three Hogaks in a trench coat. Because that could be a nightmare for Wizards of Coast as far as like coverage goes. Like, Who wants to watch that? Well, modern is this I mean, GP Dallas is modern this weekend as well. So we have we have Dallas and we have Pittsburgh. You mean GP Dallas at the Dallas-Fort Worth Convention Center? No, that's right. The, the oft-spoken about <laughs> yeah. GP that keeps moving around. GP Dallas, if you can find it. So we were going to do uh, Hogak for Sleeve It, Believe It, Heave It, because uh, I'm the person who's actually play, out of the cast who's played the most uh, of this. I did three leagues with it over the last couple of, couple of, couple of days, and uh, it is real, so I don't think we have to go into too too much definition of how it works why and maybe we'll do a deck dive soon if that's kind of the way what people want to see although i, I suspect people are kind of sick of talking about this i will go on strike if we try to do a okay deck dive. fair <laughs> fair but the thing i was going to say was so i think we should give it a a sleeve it believe it heave it rating and what i've actually thought here is I, i've come up with a new rating for for this Hogak deck because it's such a historical anomaly. Now, I I don't know if you guys remember, but a a couple, like maybe six months ago, everybody in the chat convinced me to go through the excruciating, but ultimately good 
um, exercise of putting perfect fits on my cards and then also putting them into into dragon shields. <laughs> yes, and yeah, so unheard of practice of double sleeving. Yes, double sleeving. And so I think that we should start to institute um, the rank of double sleeve for Ooh. a deck that is bec- that is so good it's bad. Because that's what the Hogak deck is, and it is excruciating to play or play against, much in the same way that double sleeving your cards is excruciating to do. So, <laughs> double sleeve it for Hogak from me. Oh man, playing against it definitely. I, I mean, I knew what it did and how it did it, but f- playing against it, you feel so helpless when it's going off, like on turn three. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, cool. I feel like you yeah. often feel the same way when you're playing the deck. Like from my, my experience, you know, I, I ran only a little better than 50%. I think across three leagues, I went eight and seven and it, it was not, uh, it's not particularly fun after the first couple of times when you do it, where you're just kind of like, <laughs> Ooh, I slammed him again on, on turn two. Um, now what do I do? So the first couple of games, there was this kind of interesting tension where I'm like, do I try to get alter out? Is it really important for me to do that right now? Do I want to try to kill them by attacking? Do I want to mill after you play it a few times? You just realize that you, you just want to kill people by milling them as fast as possible. If you have that opportunity open to you. And so it makes the right. kind of even decision-making within the deck a little bit less fun. Or I should say a lot less fun, really. I feel like that's the type of deck that kind of just gets their opponent to scoop fairly quickly. Oh, no. Oh, I can play it out. I make them. I do, too, just for the clock. But <laughs> maybe when I was doing, I did three leagues this weekend. None of the decks I played had Path to Exile. So in a couple instances, I got turn two Hogacked. And I would just scoop on the spot because I knew there was nothing I could do. Yeah. I just hope for like a misclick. Like they're like, oh, I milled too much. And I died. Oh, so you're saying the Hogak deck can accidentally Harakiri by milling itself to death? Oh yeah. Like if you if you if they if they sacrifice their Hogak one too many times with Alter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they can miscount. Or like one time Shane got the win off a Neoform deck yeah. because, you know, they didn't, you know, draw correctly the Grizzle brand or whatever. It happens. Magic Online's a hell of a thing. Yeah, I mean, if they get turned to Hogak out and don't have a bridge from below in the yard yet, you know, they are still taking a shot. If they mill, you know, mill eight blinds off of the top of their deck with an altar, they still have to get those bridges in there because um, that's the only way that they get the tokens back to be able to tap it to bring it back. They probably get, I guess they might get two shots generally before they get a chance to do it. So they, they can whiff. How do you whiff if you're just swinging with an 8-8 eight, eight trample? That's because you're not swinging. So on turn two or three, you're actually trying to kill them that turn. So you start sacking Hogak, getting cards into your graveyard, getting tokens back from Bridge for Below, recasting him. So you're not the primary game plan. I think of this deck after playing it for a while is actually to try to mill people out through the the kind of broken the broken interaction between Alter and Bridge and Hogak. And you you know you're okay if you have to kill them later because you didn't get your altar or they killed your altar or something happened where you the engine didn't get going but you, the the more more powerful thing to do and the, the less interactive thing to do is just to mill somebody with with altar hmm. yeah maybe then i scooped prematurely because i just assumed i have an empty board my opponent has an 8-8 trample and i don't have exactly path to exile so there's just nothing i can do i'll, I'll either lose in two turns from getting beat or whatever else this deck wants to do to me yeah they would do that too of course if depending on the situation but it's more most people are gonna the the mill is the real broken part the the attack is bad but you can often find a way to deal with that Hmm. Hmm. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say we're all a double sleeve on this one, regardless of what we, how much we like it or want to be around it or even want to speak its name. Yeah, oh, the, but it's, the power level is there. It's the power level is there. The consistency is there. It can win on turn two sometimes. Yeah. Just remember, double sleeve means it's so good it's bad. I think it's so good that it's bad for the format. If that's what you mean, that's exactly what I mean. Then yes, let's triple sleeve this baby and throw it into the sun. <laughs> All right, let's toss the first section of this pod into the sun where everyone can shine in its beautiful glory. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we've got a sleeve, believe, heave of some of the latest decks putting up good results on Magic Online. Stay with us. So this is not our first Leave Believe Heave episode. If you've been a loyal listener of the show, I'm sure you've heard several others. But if you're new to the show, let me explain to you what we're doing. Every time a new set comes out, we start paying attention to the Magic Online or Paper Tournament results and try to identify new decks or emerging strategies that are maximizing the new cards that come out. So for this segment, we've each picked a deck that stands out to us as something different that's happening thanks to Modern Horizons. We did some leagues with it on Magic Online, and we're going to come to you with our assessment of whether this is a deck that you should sleeve up and play, whether you should believe and keep an eye on, or whether you should heave it in the bin where Hogak belongs. (laughs) So to start us off, my buddy Zach played with two decks, actually. One that's close to home, and one that's a little on the far side. So I started this off returning to my snow-covered roots with Sultai Snow, and I thought this was going to be great. I talked about it last episode, it really interesting me, and oh my goodness, this deck was awful. <laughs> oh no. So what is in this Sultai deck, and what attracted you to it, um, given that generally the snow decks that you play are red? So I just really like snow in general. Like, that's an actual real thing about me. I like the cold, I like the snow. It's, like, a big deal for me. But more than that, I really like Jun strategies, but can't and don't have the cards for them. Like, can't afford them, don't have them, don't want to get them, etc. So, and this card seemed like a good way to use the new Kotal, as well as some other neat cards that I've been keeping an eye on. And I really do like the power of Liliana, I like Tireless Tracker, etc. This seemed to check a lot of mid-range boxes for me that I've been waiting for in a deck, and... All the reasons why I liked it were the reasons why I ended up hating it when I played it. Oh, boy. Okay. So, Kotal felt strong, but it's a 1-1. So, you do get the death touch, but it's once and then it's dead. And then, this deck really needed something like interaction with Remand or Counterspells or something. Saffron Olive actually ran a really interesting Simic Stompy list that was running the True Folk to honestly pretty good effect. And I just wish I had that True Folk constantly. Just the the common tree folk, like the the, the common, uncommon build around where card? it's equal to yeah yeah because it, it has trample ah interesting so it's not that I think Sultai snow quote unquote is an unplayable strategy but the way the deck is built right now it wasn't good enough the curve topped out at three and there wasn't anything that I wanted so didn't like this not for me I think that maybe it can grow into something but I played one league and instantly just had to message you guys like I don't want another deck please can I please do another deck I can't do this one. So what I did do and what I did enjoy was the goblins list I referred to last week as kitchen table goblins. Okay. This is so good. So this was the red black goblins list making use of a few new cards from modern horizons, namely sling gang, Lieutenant munitions expert and goblin matron. 
So this deck is a little bit similar to Scred in its game plan, no joke, in that your threats don't start until three, turn three realistically, and early game, you're using removal to clear the board to land your threats. So early game, you're either getting down a vial, bolting a creature, pushing a creature, etc. And then you are playing your three drops, which include Matron, which include uh, Goblin Warchief, Chieftain, etc. Just efficient lords. Yeah, the lord that always gets me when I play against Goblin Strategies is Goblin Chieftain. Because I always forget that... Oh, and Goblin Warchief is the same, where it gives haste. So you just have this lord where all of a sudden they drop that guy and everybody just has haste and you're kind of like... Just get blown up. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where the a power of Vile shines a lot. In that when your creatures have haste, you're Viling in a creature that's going to have an effect on the combat step. Which is normally not how Vile works, really, outside of blocking. Mm-hmm. So, honestly, this is one of the most difficult decks I've played in my entire life. And that's just because of how much combat math there was. Mm-hmm. And the tutoring aspect as well with Goblin Matron. So both Sling Gang Lieutenant and Mons Pashalik both have the ability to, dr- to damage the opponent with either sacking or when goblins dying. And there are a lot of times in a game where I would realize last turn, like, Oh, I could have won. Like I, I did, I clicked wrong and I, I'm, Oh my God, I could have won last turn. And just a lot of times things like that happened. Or I, I realized that I tutored for the wrong goblin too late. Like I treated this like it was some sort of aggressive mid range deck when it really was a combo deck that was masquerading as a creature based mid range deck. Well. Yeah, do you feel like the the game plan really is to get your opponent down to like eight and then find a way to to sacrifice enough goblins to kill them, essentially? Yeah, I, I honestly truly do, especially with um you having two sack outlets in Mons and the Singang Lieutenant. Yeah. I mean the thing that's interesting is that if you have them both out on the board at the same time, you sacrifice a goblin to the lieutenant and then Pashalik Mons also triggers because he'll exactly. he just triggers off of uh when a goblin dies. Right. So, yeah, a lot of times like that where I would not realize, like, oh, if I had... Like, it's a deck where the sequencing and just the addition, like, it, it, it's a very deep deck. And I think, honestly, because it's goblins, which are characteristically, you know, in lore, very dumb, primitive creatures, I treated the deck like it was a dumb, primitive, click attack, go, go, go deck. When it, This deck has so much depth. I think this is, honestly... Maybe the highest skill ceiling I've played in modern. I don't think it's the highest skill ceiling deck, but for me personally, I don't think I played a more challenging deck. More than Blue Eye Control from a couple of weeks ago, or humans even. Yes, because it, uh, I think it's easier for me to play reactive. Uh, like I said, I, my very, very, very first deck in Magic was a blue deck, so I, I know how to play counter spells, yeah. but I don't know how to set creatures and tutor correctly and all those other things. These are skills that I don't possess. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the thing that you're really hitting on here is that everybody looks at all the goblin cards and goes, how is that going to make 8-whack better? Exactly. And I think that that was fundamentally sort of the wrong way to to evaluate a lot of the cards that came into Modern Horizons, which is um, basically there's a different way to build a tribal deck, and it's around this kind of tricky creature synergies, viling in stuff, doing that kind of stuff, chip damage, and then finding a way to, to kind of do a big finish. Definitely. And honestly... Um, Something that came to mind after I'd finished my two leagues is something that uh, me and Shane talked about in our interview with Gaul, which is, he said, when you're playing hardened skills, you have to always be looking for lethal. Yeah. You have to constantly be counting it out and figuring it out, and that's what I realized I should have been doing the entire time. I was playing it like it was an 8-whack, like it was an aggro goblin deck, when really it was like a goblin hardened scales build. Mm. That's fascinating to hear that they put so much... You know, so many tricky on-board 
and tutoring effects that you can use to get your opponent dead uh, versus just kind of the, the concept of, like you said, like goblins has sort of always been treated as a beatdown deck. So there are games where you do want to dump your hand and go the lethal route. I'm not trying to say this is an all-in combo deck, but it seems that you would rather win with the quote-unquote combo second goblins as opposed to going with the aggro strategy. Although I did win games by just dumping my hand, playing lords, swinging, and them not having a response. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Zach, as well. Is, you know, did it feel like it was already tuned, or do you think there's some balance between the card uh, numbers and how many you want to run? Yeah, so... I, you know, last week I had made some jokes about how the deck seemed like someone had grabbed cards from their trade binder, bought out their LGS of whatever. Yeah. And I really did feel like that was the case. Wart and Kiki Jiki never, ever mattered, even when I played them, and it just felt so very bad. And likewise, Krenko maybe could be a one-of. There was a game where I went off with Krenko and it felt very good, and I felt like a Master Magic player, but I could have easily tutored him up as the one-of in the deck. And I really think that the deck really could benefit from some turn one hand disruption or turn two hand disruption. Right now, the plan versus combo is, uh-oh, hope I go fast enough. But the deck's not really a fast deck. Once mm-hmm. again, your threats aren't coming down until turn three usually. So I really like this deck. I'm going to go ahead and say I'm a firm sleeve on it, but it needs some tender love and care. But it's goblins, and they're going to print more goblins. And as we know, Goblin Ringleader is printed in M20. So it's already getting another huge tool. It's going to continue to get new tools. And I think that a goblin deck that isn't 8-whack, as Dave alluded to, has arrived. Who knows what further permutations it goes through and what other forms it takes. But I do think we're seeing a viable shell that isn't just aggro forming. That's awesome. That's uh, surprising and cool. My final take is that I think very soon Anti's Hovel will cost more than Bloodstained Mire. It's almost already there. Supply and demand. Yeah, only printed once yeah. in a small set. Yeah. I'm glad you played this act because this deck was on my short list of plans for Sleeve Believe Heave. So you did a, you did yeah, a good job I would job recommend it. it. Just be ready for some miserable math. Do you guys think it's... it's? I mean, it's not to let's give a little tease for the decks that are coming up from the rest of us. We played a lot of red and black cards <laughs> Oh yeah, in this Sleeve Believe Heave episode. Pretty interesting. Speaking of. Yeah, speaking of, I've got a red-black strategy for you. On MTG Goldfish, it's called red-black aggro. But if you've been paying attention to the recent 5-0 lists yourself, this is the deck with Skelemental in it. Skelemental! So basically, it's an aggro disruptive strategy. It combines mid-range removal and hand disruption spells along with graveyard synergies and beatdown creatures. Thanks to your graveyard plan, this is a deck that always gets to run for Faithless Looting. Specifically, Bloodgast and Flamewake Phoenix are the cards that come out of the yard easiest. Though, I'm going to go into this a little bit later, Flamewake isn't free, which sometimes can be an issue. Also, the addition of 4 Unearth lets you throw other threats into the yard, including Skelemental and Seasoned Pyromancer, and then just get them back later, thanks to Unearth. One of the first things that really stood out to me about this deck is how impressed I was with the War of the Spark card, Dreadhorde Arcanist. Yeah. I really wanted to talk about this card, too, for my because uh, I played Mardo Pyromancer, and so I'm glad that you're bringing it up because we were definitely slow on the uptake on this card. Yeah, and, and this card is pretty slow, and I think he's also quite fair, but he blocks reasonably well for a 2-drop. He's uh, a 1-3. 
And also, he sets up a lot of two-for-ones, if not three-for-ones, because he's able to recast a lot of your early spells, whether it's Thought Seize, Lightning Bolt, or Fatal Push. So against creature decks, a single Bolt or Fatal Push, plus Dreadhorde Arcanist attacking into a board full of creatures, will sometimes net you two or three creatures from your opponent's side. Likewise, an, yeah. Ar- an Arcanist plus a couple Thought Seize made it really hard for some of my opponents to keep up in the mid to late game, basically, as I executed my plan and they were running out of cards to cast. He also lets you unearth if you cycle it. Um, worth noting, an interaction I was curious about and discovered the hard way is that if you cast unearth with Arcanist to target a lightning skeletal, the skeletal will not attack on that turn. So you'll just get no value out of it and it'll get sacrificed again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. too bad. I mean, but the the reason just to point out to people there, and, and this is a pretty like normal magic rule, but you know, Arcanists or Arcanists ability triggers when it attacks. And since you had to declare attacks, you don't get to, to de- another opportunity to declare an attacker when the Skelemental comes onto the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So just keep in mind. Yeah, I was really curious if that would work. I wasn't exactly sure. And for a while, I thought maybe I can get a friend of mine into a practice room to basically let me construct the scenario. But then I had this one game where I was so far ahead of my opponent and I knew I was almost guaranteed to win and the scenario presented itself. I just figured I'll try it out. And I did. And M2GO confirmed the ruling for me. In Hearthstone, that's called bad manners. (laughs) So I got to say, my biggest problem with this deck was specifically the land count the version i ran only had 18 which for one forced me to play faithless looting aggressively to get through my deck in some situations even if i didn't have a great recursive plan Mm -hmm. and likewise the low land count made it hard for me to sometimes get flame wake phoenixes back consistently yeah seems like a little bit of a nombo with skelemental right yeah because it's not uncommon for me to just cast skelemental from my hand and when I do, I typically didn't have that fourth land to bring a phoenix out. Yeah. So even though you're triggering the ferocious trigger with mm-hmm. the skeletal, for example, you don't get to use it. Exactly. One of my other issues with this current shell is that it felt, on one hand, untuned. But at the same time, it wasn't really obvious what the deck was missing or needed. So, for example, it's got a couple Gurmog Anglers... I think three Flamewake Phoenix and one Tassiger. And all of these cards demonstrated their value and power over the course of the two leagues I played. But these cards specifically make your deck especially vulnerable to graveyard hate. Mm-hmm. And likewise, sometimes there's this tension where I wouldn't want to cast Delve creatures because I was counting on Arcanist to flash something back for me. So this tension between the yard being either an extension of my hand or you know, a source of mana made it kind of uncomfortable and it put me in situations that I wouldn't really want out of a tournament ready deck, so to speak. So if this strategy does evolve moving forward, this is the source of tension where I would expect changes and improvements to come over time. You, you want to know what I think is really interesting about this list? I, this is the first time that I've looked at it as well while you're talking, you know, right now, listening to your experience playing it. So six months ago, I think that... Uh, do you know what this list was called six months ago? Hollow One. Yeah, yeah I was thinking I mean, the same thing. Gurmag Angler and <clears throat> Flame Wake and everything. This, yeah, is, everything this else. is Hollow One with a different, with a different, slightly different creature suite. And so it's interesting to see maybe in a at a time when 
Hollow One is too slow, maybe, to be like, hey, what we should do is swap that out for uh, a, a less kind of fragile threat because Hollow One picks up creature and artifact removal. And then also the haste from the, the Skelemental, it has a little bit more disruption than the Hollow One deck got to, got to run. That's for sure. Also, I don't know if the issue with Hollow One was speed as much as consistency, because sometimes right. you're just drawing and discarding cards into the blind, and you might lose the cards you're trying to cast. Yeah, yeah sometimes absolutely. you discard three Hollow Ones to Goblin Lore. Right. Yep, exactly. So th- this gets to back off on that, and um, it's, it's, it's interesting to see most of the same cards in a, in a shell, a new shell. Yeah, I do want to emphasize, though, specifically with the Phoenixes and the Delve creatures, they were all excellent in certain matchups. So Angler specifically was really vital for me in some games where I needed either a big body to block or pressure my opponent. He helped me win a match against Hogak. So hey. Also, a recursive Flame Wake on turn two after I turn one Faithless Looting and drop Flame Wake and Scalamental. And then turn two, I've got Unearth for Scalamental <laughs> and an extra red for the Phoenix. Let's me swing for eight. And like sometimes if my opponent is either mulliganing aggressively or if I have like some hand disruption somewhere out there, like a single swing from a Scalamental feels like it's getting rid of half or more of my opponent's hand. So it sets up really great tempo advantage, especially early. Would you describe this as like a super aggressive deck, Stan, or is it more kind of like you, it's a it's a resource advantage game where you just kind of eventually take over the game and your opponent has no cards in hands? Or I think it's somewhere in the middle. So it's not mono red Phoenix or Infect fast. You know, I I never felt like I had the means to end on turn three or four, full stop. But because my turns two and threes were really fast and explosive, and sometimes I was carving cards out of my opponent's hands, it felt like I got inevitability pretty early on, even if it took me another turn or two to finish the deal. Yeah, I think this really speaks to the point that we talked about with Riley when he was on, about modern decks sort of have to be able to fit into two archetypes these days to be viable or to be really good, where you have to be able to go fast, and if that's not going to work, or you have to know your role, and if going fast isn't right, then you switch to your mid-range plan. I also do want to mention really quick that Flameweight Phoenix was a perfectly good top deck. Sometimes it would just help me win out of nowhere, so it always felt like it was on plan. It just kind of felt like it tarnished the plan a little bit by making it less consistent which just left me wondering whether this is the type of deck that's going to be rough around the edges in its early versions or if this is the weak points that players are going to have to come to terms with moving forward i want to talk really quick about unearth because this card was amazing i think it really makes the deck possible though in 11 matches i never once felt the need to cycle it And part of me thinks that's because my opponents didn't really play a lot of graveyard hate against me. I didn't deal with a single ley line, though a ley line of the void would probably be pretty good against this deck. Uh, But generally speaking, whenever I had an earth, I usually had enough things to do with my mana that it was perfectly okay holding on to it until I was able to cash it in later for a creature out of the yard. Yeah, I was very impressed with on earth as well. Uh, I could talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but I I definitely feel like I gave that... um a little bit less credit than it deserves or it's actually turned out to to have yeah so if it's not clear i loved this deck and i truly think it's a sleeve i think it's going to appear in more 5-0 lists because it's both aggressive and disruptive in really effective ways 
I think it's a really good deck for FNM plays. I think it's going to help like early adopters just go undefeated when their opponents aren't expecting it or know how to play against it. I think we as a podcast kind of underestimated Lightning Skelemental and we thought it was a joke, but the discard two tacked onto a big creature felt really backbreaking for some of my opponents. And if I was able to make contact with my opponent twice, I don't think I was able to lose at that point. It was so much the best unearth target that it made unearth one of the best top decks I could draw if I'm just looking for a way to finish the game. Also, got to talk about Seasoned Pyromancer. He was always amazing anytime I cast him. For one, the deck has great discard targets, either in the form of Bloodgast or Flamewake Phoenix or even Faithless Looting, uh, such that I was almost always getting at least one elemental token off of him, if not two, and perfectly happy with that. Likewise, if I was casting him from an empty hand, the draw two ability was usually as impactful on the board as small bodies would have been. So I was really impressed with him. I personally slept on this card. I really think it's one worth picking up. I think he's going to be a versatile tool in a lot of decks moving forward. And at Mythic Rare, his price will probably just continue to tick up over time. So to wrap up, I did two leagues. I went 7-3 with this deck. One of those leagues I went 4-1. I did 3-2 in the second league. Um, I also won a single match in the practice rooms against Blue Green Snake Tribal. So, hey. Sick brags. Yeah, totally. In the leagues, I played very real meta decks that I think a lot of people are familiar with. I was matched against Hogak three times, and I won two out of those three matchups. I was matched against Scapeshift twice, and I went one-on-one with Scapeshift. I beat Blue Moon, Naya Zoo, Jund, and Neoform combo. The only deck that two owed me was Is It Phoenix, which I played against once. I'm just excited to tell you guys that the last time I had this much fun playing an unfamiliar deck for our podcast was when we did our Tron episode once upon a time. But the difference here is that I really want to sleeve this deck up myself. And to use a popular MTGism, I think it's the real deal. Hmm. Wow. I'm surprised to hear this. <laughs> Me too, actually. I mean, Stan. Do you think? Do you, okay. Let, let's. Let's. I just want to ask. I just want to ask some questions here. Okay. Please. So let's. Let, yeah. Let's say. Let's say you went four six with this deck, right? Okay. Like, would you think you'd be feeling? Do you think you'd be feeling the same way? I went three seven with my deck and loved it. So just F- FYI. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear when you take a deck either through one match or even through a league, you start to figure out how it operates, what it's weaknesses are what its strengths are and win lose or draw the deck was super fun you know that's something that we talk about sometimes even between the four of us like is a fun deck that's not viable any less fun and i think in general we would agree that for fnm play something that you are excited about playing that makes your decisions interesting that can sometimes let you steal games or you know, play creatures you like or pull off mechanics that can surprise your opponents i think there's a, a lot of value in that so if I had gone 4-6, I don't know if I would be as excited about buying into it, but it felt <laughs> like easy going that 4-1 even. Neoform couldn't get a single win against me. There was just like nothing some of these decks could do against me at all. And I think that's something that the deck demonstrated, not because I ran super hot, but because it has potential for being on plan for what Modern is about right now. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask, so to build off what you just said, so when you were playing this deck, and because I, I think this tails in nicely with the, with the Pyromancer build that I was playing too, you know, what did you feel like your plan was against against Hogak? Was it just the graveyard cards that you had in the sideboard? Was the hand disruption helpful? Like, what, what do you think made that engine go? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think I won a single game one against Hogak. And as I mentioned earlier, I would scoop pretty aggressively in part because I would think it was inevitable for them to win. And in other parts, I just felt like I'm going to save time and try to find some of my sideboard cards. I had ley lines and rav traps in the side. It was the spirit of the skeletal. Got to go fast. That's what's up. In my post-board games, I did pretty well with my discard spells, getting rid of Altar of Dementia. I think that's the best card in Hogak to target with Hand Disruption because that's the one card that doesn't really give them a lot of value out of the graveyard. Totally agree. Likewise, I used a lesson that our very own Zach taught me, which was graveyard hate is so important against Hogak that I had to be willing to mulligan to five to, to find it. So I would do that. I would mulligan pretty aggressively and I would either keep going until I found a graveyard hate card or I would just stop at five if the five was reasonable. So I think having Gurmag Angler helped because it was a blocker for the little zombies. It was even a blocker for Carrion Crawler. Graveyard hate, obviously very important. And also well-targeted hand disruption did the work. Also, weird shout out to Grim Lavamancer. Once I had their graveyard under control, I was able to use the Grim Lavamancer to just pick off some zombies, which really did the trick to clear the board for me to get through and ultimately win. Huh. Hmm. Huh. Do you think so? Do you think that uh, Lightning Skelemental is just like a reasonable role player card? I, I've played against it in a couple of different leagues, and I basically never got hit by it uh, across a couple of different decks. I think I played against this deck. I, I definitely played against the uh, what's the what's the name of the green ball lightning ground shaker, something like that. There's Earthbreaker. a deck. Yeah, I played against a deck that was basically collected companies and ball lightning and skeletal and the green color shifted ball lightning, and it didn't really impress me in that context. I mean, do you feel like do you feel like this is going to be a shell that's really built around that card? Well, I guess my question for you is, how did the opponent's skeletal not deal a single point of damage to you? I killed it or double blocked it a bunch of times. So you had it's actually a, a lightning bolt, breaker. basically, to just kill it at instant speed? Fatal push, lightning bolt. I think I was playing, at least one time when I played against it, I was playing uh, Mono Red Phoenix. So I was definitely having Lava Dart, mm -hmm. Gut Shot, and things like that as well. That makes sense. That happened to me at least once, now that I think about it, where I got a Skeletal out, my opponent removed it, and then I didn't get to hit them. But... I don't know, you get through the deck faster than I think you realize because of all the Faithless lootings, the Pyromancers. It's a tricky question to ask. I don't know if it's actually the strongest card in the deck or whether it's the card that kind of holds the deck together and makes it hard for your opponents to come back after you've executed your plan a little bit. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I think it yeah. has to hit to be most effective. If If it just eats a removal spell, it did nothing. Yeah. So... To your point, maybe it's the glue that holds the deck together when a player doesn't want to do something as glass cannony as Hollow One. Yeah. Maybe 
I just got lucky because my opponents didn't know what they were doing, but maybe it's just a good companion to to season pyromancer. Yeah. It was a blast. It was a blast. I loved casting it. I loved casting Unearth. What do you think about the Four Thought Seas? I, I really don't want to talk about this deck anymore, but what do you think about Four Thought Seas versus, like, why Four Thought Seas instead of, like, a few Inquisitions? Like, very few decks are running the full suite of Thought Seas. It's not like you need to lower you, your life total. You can take everything with it, though. Well, I understand this. I Shane, mean, I'm offering you a master thesis and going fast, and you refuse to take my level 400 course. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's why, Shane. I think it's because Dreadhorde Arcanist lets you recast a lot of spells from your yard, and a late Thoughtseize is better than a late Inquisition. Sure. Okay, go fast. Also, it doesn't care. This this deck doesn't care about the damage, too, because I think it is trying to win faster. Right. It's not a turn three deck, but it's a, a fast inevitability deck. That's really how I felt in the end. Dave, you played a red-black base deck, didn't you? I did play a red-black deck. Everybody played a red-black deck today except for you, Shane. So yeah. I played sort of the mirror image of the deck that, that Stan played. And I've mentioned it a couple of times earlier tonight, but I played the uh, Mardu Pyromancer, the new version of Mardu Pyromancer, let's say. Or as some people have decided they want to call it, they want to call it Octomancer, which I don't know if I'm on board with that name or not. So uh, I think probably most people who listen to this podcast are familiar with the deck that was popular about a year and a half ago, the Mardu Pyromancer build that was sort of um, championed by a somewhat anonymous Magic Online player by the screen name of SelfieSec, who played this deck for a really, really long time. And then Jerry Thompson sort of brought it to the main stage by taking it to a Pro Tour um, a couple of, uh, you know, last spring. I think it was Pro Tour Rivals of Ixalan was the one where uh, Jerry ended up coming in second place playing Mardu Pyromancer. And the idea of this deck is basically getting to play token generation uh you know it's built around young pyromancer and faithless looting and um lingering souls essentially and then a strong dis- uh strong hand disruption suite a strong creature removal suite and then a couple other ways to kind of grind out value by doing things like faithless looting and and other payoffs like that now so this is an updated version of the deck and this update is mostly built around the idea of bringing in seasoned Pyromancer as a four of into the deck as a way to create additional opportunities for grinding out um, card advantage or grinding out uh, incremental value through because seasoned Pyromancer is clearly a perfect engine for that kind of stuff. It draws cards, it put cards in your graveyard, and it also can give you up to four tokens depending on how you how you use it and when you deploy it. And I think that. You know, as someone who played the original uh, Marty Pyromancer a couple years ago and then saw, or, you know, a year and a half ago, and then saw Season Pyromancer come out and get slotted in this deck immediately, I will say that that is definitely the biggest change between this version of the deck and previous versions of the deck. It's the most powerful uh, card that's been added to it, and it's kind of the new centerpiece of the deck. And I definitely felt like, you know, I kind of went out and bought. Uh, a set of season pyromancers immediately after playing this deck for a while because I just think that that card is a clearly a new staple for modern. I talked a couple of episodes ago about how much my estimation had a, uh, of it had improved as we were going through spoiler season, and then just watching all the decks that it's been in now um, has been super super interesting. And I, I definitely was feeling the power um, going through the couple of leagues that I did with this deck. Dave, do you think our our original like episode one when we didn't have the full spoilers at all like do you think that original assessment is carried over or does does it feel 
good at most points in the game? Like, does it feel good early? Does it feel good late? Does it feel like you're able to refill your hand with it? You know, what are you doing mostly with it? Are you trying to make tokens? It's really everything. I think that you have to sit down. Mm. It's one of those things. So let's let's talk about the difference between the deck that Stan just went over and what Mardu Pyromancer is. So yeah. there was a certain point in time where people were kind of like, well, the Mardu deck is better at Junding than Jund is. And what, yes. what do people mean when they say that? Well, it's about gaining these incremental advantages kind of finding a way to get rid of all of your opponent it's a little bit of a control theory where you're kind of like trying to grind out card advantage against your opponent but you have a better clock and you have more creatures so that you can present earlier threats so you don't try to protect your threats once you put them on on the board but you do try to make it where it's really hard for your opponent to catch up by limiting the number of resources that they have specifically cards in hand and creatures on the board essentially so decks like this are generally pretty good if you're killing creatures or trying to figure out a way to go, and in the case of Marty Pyromancer, how to go wide. So like Jund tries to build a big threat that's cheap, and then kind of disrupt, disrupt, disrupt around it. Marty Pyromancer tries to build generally a wide board, and then disrupt, 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 so that people can't keep, get rid of all of your tokens, or you just kind of go around them. And um, specifically in the case of the deck that Stan was was playing versus this one, you know, the red-black aggro deck that Stan was talking about, while it still had four season pyromancers it had 20 creatures you know while his deck was mm -hmm. running a core of hand disruption lightning bolt fatal push um and unearth essentially and faithless looting as kind of like the five spells that he was running the mardu pyromancer deck is running all of those plus collective brutality lingering souls and a number of different kind of utility spells so mardu pyromancer is much more of a spells deck obviously because it wants to trigger off of young pyromancer while that red black deck was much more of kind of a creature synergy deck or creature aggro deck where you get value. The thing that's really interesting to me about the Mardu Pyromancer decks as they're kind of evolving right now is that the core is very, very up in the air right now as people try to use this to metagame against different things that are going on. So I've seen builds in this that, you know, run Young Pyromancer, Season Pyromancer, and Yogmoth. I've seen ones that run Young Pyromancer, Season Pyromancer, and Dreadheart Ar Arcanist. I've seen ones that run three of those creatures plus a bedlam reveler or two just like old school kind of mardu pyromancer so people are definitely playing around with the creature suite they're equally playing around with the spells that make in the deck get in the deck main board main deck and ones that go in the sideboard so i think that one of the main potentials with this deck is that it's really good because it has white in it to be able to um, have access to powerful sideboard cards. You've got your hand disruption, and then you also have access to a whole bunch of powerful spells all the way from kind of lightning bolt to path to exile to thought seize to all these different tools to be able to configure exactly the way to make it work in the metagame that we have right now. Um, my experience was that I, I didn't get to play a list that had, I did not play a list that had Smiting Helix or Yawgmoth in it. And in part, that was because card availability over the last couple of days has been hard on Magic Online. I couldn't get any Yawgmoths or Smiting Helixes. Did you have Lightning Helix? No, I don't. I, I actually don't like playing Lightning Helix straight up in this just because that often does become a card that you just end up holding, at least in the old Mardu Pyromancer builds. So I was really, the deck that I was running was basically Faithless Looting, Inquisition, Thought Seize, Lightning Bolt, Unearth, Lingering Souls, and uh, some number of Collective Brutalities main. Mm-hmm. And then I would often have Path to Exile on the sideboard and a couple of other spells like that. Um, but 
the and the creatures package that I ran was the Young Pyromancer, Season Pyromancer, Dreadhorde Arcanist version, mm. which again you know like stan talked about in the deck that he was playing i was super impressed with dreadhorde arcanist a number of times i unearthed it a number of times to be able to bring it back so that i could later start grinding out other cards you know i definitely used it to get an unearth back to get a season pyromancer back to double thought seize people to do all kinds of things that were just kind of like it really felt pretty powerful yeah how close is this card to like snap um it's well i mean obviously it's slower Yes. Hmm. Why is that? It's different. Like it, it yeah. serves almost a different purpose because it's better the longer it sticks around, but it doesn't surprise the opponents in the same way. You know what I mean? You're you're not using it yeah. to do any instant speed tricks to two for one your opponent on the spot. You kind of want to grind it out over time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that part of the thing that you have to do when you're playing this is that it's even more restrictive on the cards you can play than Snapcaster Mages. Because really, you just want to play one CMC spells with Dreadhorde yeah, Arcanist right. because there's no way to, to increase its power in most decks. And that's the way that it triggers. So you're really just thinking about like, okay, am I going to get an extra Lightning Bolt? Am I going to get an extra Fatal Push out? That that was what I one spell that I forgot to mention is that I was running a lot of Fatal Pushes, which actually were really good for me in the matchups that I happen to have. But... Uh, number one, this deck looks very cool. Number two, where did you struggle? Like, what matchups did this deck not yeah. have the answers to? Yeah, I was, do you think this deck can beat Tron yet? Like, that's you know that's something that Mario Paramazer can never do. Do, do you think it's still well, out Jun's Jun? I do think it's still out out Jun's Jun, and in fact, I beat Jun twice. Heads up, um, I did I did well in those kind of medium long kind of matches. I did not seem to do as well against like Is It Phoenix and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I so far I'm five and three or five and two with the deck, so I haven't I haven't played a full two leagues with it so far. But I've been I've been definitely enjoying it, and it's and but it's mostly been yeah about grinding grinding out against people who uh, have it. It's good against creature decks, honestly. So every time I'm sure. up against somebody like Merfolk or something. I did happen to play a Merfolk deck that I beat with this ultimately. And it, it's just, I have a lot of removal. I can play my removal at advantageous times. And then I can play it again with uh dreadheart arcanist. I don't think my question got answered about what matchup is struggled against. Well, like Shane said, traditionally it struggled against, against Tron. Okay. And I'm trying to, so big mana decks are hard. I feel like it's, it would struggle against Hogak. I actually didn't play, you know, I've played Hogak a, a number of times, like I said earlier in the episode. I didn't run across it with this deck. I think it would have a tough sure. time against it, although I do have a lot of cards on my sideboard. Like I, The deck that I was running had a full set of Leyline of the Void in the side. Um, it has some artifact removal as well to try to help get rid of, of Alter Dementia and a lot of hand disruption, so I would love to test that out and see, but I suspect that it would probably have a tough time against that deck as well because it's just not fast enough. So Mardu Pyro has really fallen out of the meta since it first emerged. Do you think Seasoned Pyromancer is enough to push this deck back into a higher tier? I mean, I think the real thing that's going on here is what what Shane said a minute ago, which is can this deck beat Tron mm. right now? And the answer is <laughs> the answer is well, apparently there isn't much Tron suddenly. 
around in, yeah. around in the metagame. If you look at the results of the two tournaments we looked at today, I think the only one that was in the top 16 was in the second tournament we looked at. There was a single Tron list. I think that something is going on where Tron literally can't beat Hogak or something like that, and so nobody's playing Tron right now. And it might be the same way with Scapeshift, which is another thing that I think that Marty Pyromancer had a tough time against as well. We're also seeing a lot of uh, bird decks pop up in top eights, and I think that we talked about how Tron can struggle against the explosive power of uh, that deck as well. Yeah. But I will say, just as it's a closing thought here, that the the powerful cards from Modern Horizons, specifically Season Pyromancer and Unearth, are both really, really amazing. And playing these first couple of leagues that I've played after Unearth has been in the format, I have to reassess what I said about it earlier, which is how much better could this card be than Claim Fame? And I think the answer is quite a bit. Yeah. We're going to talk about cards we missed in our wind down, Dave. So we'll rehit that. Don't worry. Mistakes were made, Dave. Yeah. Um, the thing about Season Pyromancer is that it's just a great utility tool, and it gives you so many little options to figure out what you want to do at this moment in time. So sometimes you're fine cycling two lands to draw two new cards. Other times you play it and you want to get rid of two cards that have flashbacks so that you can get two tokens. Other times you 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 run it out there and you don't you don't even care about making tokens, and then you have it killed, and then later on you can reanimate it, or not reanimate, you can activate its graveyard ability so that you can put two tokens into play, and that's pretty de- de- decisive as well um there's lots of different angles that you can go with it and i think that's why it's a really powerful card and why i think it's going to be an important card in the um for mid-range decks in the metagame so i think if you learn anything from the sleeve belief heave today especially from stan and i it's that season pyromancer is legit and unearth and dreadhorde arcanist Yep, are all all legit. And so I don't know which one of these shells is going to be the right one for those cards, whether it's something that's more like what Stan was playing or whether it's Jund or whether it's something more like what I was playing. But I I think that there's definitely a a powerful core around there for for people who like to play decks like this. And so I, I definitely think this is a sleeve. I think this deck is going to get better in the next couple of weeks as people tune the cards that it needs to succeed in the meta. Yeah, and for your MTG Finance tip of the week, I mean, Season Pyromancer is being seen run as three and four ofs and multiple decks that are doing well, and it's still like a $14 Mythic out of Modern Horizons. Right. So I think you need to snag these sooner rather than later. Yeah, I started buying yeah. some of mine from the local shops. Yeah, uh, it's even showing up in a five o prison list. So I really think that I don't, and I don't, we can talk about that later if it belongs there or not, but I think that it's power so good that you really can just put it in most red decks and have an okay time with it. Agree. All right. So ready to move on to my deck of the week. So we've got three sleeves in a row now. Shane, are you going to give us the slam dunk home run? Touchdown? No, well, here here comes here comes Shane to bring you your daily dose of moderate negativity. Um <laughs> potentially. Um okay, so that's on your business card, right? Yeah. So I played a version of Bant Infect. And so Infect is one of the earliest modern decks that I got into and this is like 2015, back when it was incredibly powerful 
and popular, but the printing of Fatal Push and the banning of Gataxian Probe kind of made things tough out there for the Infect pilots, and the deck slowly kind of drifted into you know single-digit percentages as other decks sort of got better around it. And so you don't, if you don't know, Infect uses these fragile creatures with the keyword Infect, and so you deal damage as Infect counters instead of attacking your opponent's life total. And so if someone gets 10 Infect counters... They lose the game. They're poison counters. Let's not get it twisted. They're not. They're not oh, infect man. counters. Okay, ten poison counters. Yeah. So and poison dealing... counters were introduced in Legends. That's yeah. wild. You'll be hearing from my lawyer, born. Shane. So dealing ten damage is a lot easier than dealing twenty. Um, but deck, cool. <laughs> yeah, I know. Says you. Weird. So decks are easily, but de- you know, decks that are easily able to block or use removal on infect creatures. And so you want a whole bunch of protection spells to keep them from being removed or evasion to get around blockers. That's kind of the name of the game of Infect. So you get these cheap pump spells to pump up your Infect creatures and try to close the game out typically pretty quickly. And so it's kind of been lingering in the background for a few years now. But there's a bit of a buzz with Infect being back since Modern Horizons, for sure, with a card called Scale Up, but also a little bit before um, with a Teferi Time Raveler, which made it really hard for your opponent to interact on your turn. So it kind of gave you uh, a clear space to operate in, knowing that they couldn't really be doing anything on your turn. So Scale Up, everyone saw this card and immediately realized it was probably going to fit right into Infect because um, it makes for a lot of more two-card combos for the win in Infect. So for a single green mana, it basically acts as like a plus five, plus three sorcery speed pump. So you combine that with any of your plus four pump spells like a Might of Volcrosa, a Landfall-triggered Groundswell, maybe even a double mutagenic growth, a Kicked Vines of Vastwood, that's going to equal your 10 Infect damage. And so that's you know kind of a big game. Just a two-card combo gets you 10 damage along with your Infect creature. So another card out of Horizons that people have been curious about testing in, in fact, is Giver of Runes. And, you know, you, Giver of Runes provides sort of this onboard persistent protection and a blockability for your infect creatures to get through. And like I mentioned, even before Horizons, people were testing Teferi Time Raveler, maybe sometimes in the main or in the side. Um, combine that with something like the really hard to remove ink, mo- ink Moth Nexus. So, you know, that makes you have to have this small stretch into white mana and allows for some sideboard cards like Path to Exile. So I'd seen Aaron Barrich, who's a skilled Infect pilot. They've uh, won a number of SEG events running Infect, and they've been doing some testing with various Bant builds with Giver of Runes and Teferi 3. And so what I did is I ran their most recently posted list through a few leagues. I really wanted to see if Infect felt like it was back and how these new cards were working for it in today's metagame. So this build, Barish didn't like Teferi Time Reveler in the main too much during their early testing. Um, so they have three of them in the side, but they kept the four main deck Giver of Runes. And so... Getting those four cards in, you know, like what people mention a lot is, okay, well, let's just add this new card. We have to take some cards out, right? So when you put the four Giver of Runes in, it requires shaving some other cards down. And in this build, people seem to like to shave Groundswells pretty early because it is one of the first pump spells 
that re- has a real strict requirement. You know, you have to have the landfall trigger. Even with fetch lands, it's not super guaranteed. Yeah, that's fair. It only has one become immense and only a single distortion strike and a single spe- spell pierce as well. What do you think the reason for shaving down become immense is? Do you think it's that there's graveyard hate? Because people are going to bring it against effect, right? Is it that main board graveyard hate's a real concern? Become immense has been dropping pretty steadily in infect builds. Okay. One of, I think some of the reason is that the deck just isn't quite as explosive, especially with a loss of Cataxian probe. And some Fair. people, some people have been making up for that by actually running Mishra's bobble the past few months. Oh, okay. As a kind of to, you know, to, to cycle through the deck more quickly and fuel your become immenses. But it, people I think are a little bit less high on become immense for whatever reason. So I really can't answer that question. I do not think it's because it's graveyard. No one's going to bring in graveyard hate against Infect, right. typically. So, but you know, other than the changes I mentioned earlier, it pretty much looks like Infect decks you'd expect to see, right? It's got your Noble Hierarchs, your Glistener Elves, your Blighted Agents, your Ink Moth Nexus, your Pump and Protection spells, yada, yada, yada. And the sideboard in this build was currently pretty hedged against the popularity of Hogik. It's got a few Rav Traps, a few Grafdiggers Cages. It's got a Force of Vigor, which I think is good more than just Hogak decks, of course. And it has just a few interaction counter magic spells, right? So playing this deck, it still felt like Infect has the ability to produce some really fast kills. And you need that in today's modern metagame, I think. It's a very fast format. But I think that things still have to go quite well for you in order to do those ultra-fast kills. You know, you have to have the right combination of a creature that sticks to the board, the pump spells that um, get the damage in, and your opponent not to really have early blockers to stop kind of your turn one glistener elves unless you have the the unblockable spells or the spells that provide some kind of evasion. Um, Scale up was totally good. It's definitely a card I'm I'm seeing that you're going to want three of in any infect build, and the only reason you might not want to run four is that it doesn't stack at all. Because you know, just it's just provides kind of a new base power and toughness. It's not like add power and toughness. Yeah, because a hand with two scale ups is kind of the pits, right? Yeah, I mean you could use it in two turns in a row. I mean you're freak you're not frequently killing on a single turn. That's kind of ideal because you're kind of relying on the opponent to allow you to untap and then also scale up provides no protection. It's a sorcery speed pump spell only. Right. So you know, this is where something like giver of runes would come in, right? Like giver of runes felt fine. And I don't know if I was in the mashups where I think she can shine a little bit more. She was really helpful against a, a humans opponent. When I used giver of runes a ton, I had multiple giver of runes on the board and she was able to provide color based protection on like my glistener elves and my ink moth nexuses to punch through that infect damage. Um, and you know, that's not a deck that's really doing a ton of targeting of your creatures. Like maybe if they had a deputy of detention or a reflector mage, that's something where I would, you know, want that color based protection on the opponent's turn or in response to like a, a, a viled in creature, but I really didn't have to do that. So really what she was doing is just letting me get my damage through their wall of blockers. But one of the big issues I felt with a giver of runes was that she is a tempo problem in Infect. You know, when the format is super fast right now in a number of ways. And so when you are taking a turn to cast a giver of runes instead of, say, another pump spell 
or another creature you may have, like a one of the mirror um, infect creatures, right? So you're just relying on you untapping with that giver of runes and then using her to provide some kind of static protection or static and block ability to get the damage through. And it's just a lot slower than what infect was typically doing in the past. Yeah, you you almost have to assume that you're not going to get to use giver until at least turn three to do something right. Because you have to play a threat and you have to play giver and there's not really yes. any way to do those both with before turn right. three, right? Yeah, I mean, unless unless you do like a turn two with like a noble hierarch or something. Uh, oh, you're yeah. right. Yeah, even no well, then you don't get to attack with a, with a thing until yes. turn, turn three. Yes. Yeah. So just for for scale, so I had a matchup over the weekend where, and I feel like this happened a couple of times when I was playing because I played a bunch of Hogak, I played a bunch of Monored Phoenix, and I played a bunch of Mardu Pyromancer while I was on vacation last week. And I had a match where I was mono red Phoenix and I was ready to kill my opponent on their third turn and mm-hmm. they killed me on their third turn instead. Mm-hmm. So they, they were on the play. I only, I was on the draw and I was going to kill them on my third, third, third turn, but they killed me first. And I felt like that happened a couple of different times where both of us, either one of us would have won on turn three or turn four. And yeah. so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, playing giver kind of, sets you back a little bit in a way that would make you not competitive with decks like that. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking about Teferi time reveler that can certainly be helpful in like kind of a longer grindier game as well. Like shutting off your opponent's ability to interact on your turn is super awesome. You know, you can bounce blockers. They eventually feel they kind of have to play onto the board, but I don't think it belongs in the main deck. I do agree with Aaron Barrich there. It's just not really on the game one game plan at all. I brought it in against decks I felt would be kind of uh, grind fest, and I'd want that long game protection and long game ability to ultimately just fight through things. Um, but modern's modern. There's not a ton of opportunities for him to really shine. So I guess what, I, what I'm kind of getting at and what I was mentioning before is I feel the format's really caught up to Infect in a lot of ways. You know, it's been you know three, four years since Infect was really at its peak. You know, there's there's more answers to small creatures that you need to keep on the battlefield. Like, you know, there's still the classics like bolt, push, path, but now I'm running into things like main deck gut shots. There's lava darts. There's Renin, there's right. Renin six, there's plague engineer, you know, plague engineer naming humans is super nasty because it, it removes your hierarchs and you can't play a blighted agent into it because that's a human. It's like an infected human person. So it's not an elf. That poor person. I cast a blighted agent into uh, a plague engineer. And then I was like, Oh, I guess read the card. <laughs> I think it's worth noting that all the three decks that me, Stan, and Dave mentioned tonight are running spot removal that cleans up infect very nicely. Oh yeah, I mean that's always been the thing you didn't want to see, right? You didn't want to see heavy removal based decks, but I think that three red black decks coming at you. Yeah, but then the you know there's still a ton of powerful blue red decks that have tons of red removal as well. You know the the format just feels a little bit faster and more disruptive at the same time. So back when Infect was ruling the roost, like what all you really had to worry about were those decks like Jund. And now you're facing down like an upheaval that's also a seven power beater or like these creature decks 
that are removing your pump spells from your hand when they're casting like a disruptive creature on you. There's prison decks that are rushing a chalice on one. There's devoted druid combo decks that are making infinite green mana on turn three. There's Tron decks trying to shut your mana off by turn four. And, you know, we're seeing the increased popularity of these black-based mid-range strategies due to the new cards like Unearth, um, Espermentor and Jund. You know, these aren't helping you avoid seeing these removal-heavy decks as well. So I just felt somewhat frustrated and lacking the answers I needed to what my opponents were doing, either in terms of like the mid to long game where I was just getting a lot of removal cast at me without the protection spells, or I didn't have the answers to outrace these opponents and a sample size, of course, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I was doing anything unfair any longer. Right. And, and I, I just like what Dave mentioned earlier is, you know, these, is it Phoenix decks or rather these like mono red Phoenix decks that can pretty easily kill on turn three. So it's like, why am I playing this more fragile strategy now trying to just like tend somebody when plenty of decks are really easily 20ing people. Yeah. Monored Phoenix is like faster than burn and faster than infect. And it's like a similar plan. Yeah. It's like, if it's faster, if it's faster than infect, like what's the point? Like, and yeah, I think this echoes again to the comment we talked about where in modern you sort of need to be able to transition your game plan and in fact can't really do no, that. No, in fact right? has no reach. Like you have reach in a like mono red Phoenix build. Yeah, true. Sure. So I don't know. Like I don't really think Giver of Runes is necessarily on the game plan of in fact that I think would is the most successful. Like I, I have seen some people who are saying you still want to be the glass cannon. You still want to have a ton of pump spells. You don't want to be worrying about protecting your creatures with like slower protection, like giver of runes. You just want to have this, like the blossoming defenses and the vines of vast woods and such. Um, so the trade off when you run for giver of runes didn't necessarily feel correct. Um, I think Teferi belongs on the board. You know, I think if, especially if the format maybe slows down in a post Hogak world, it's probably correct to expect to win with like some late game ink moth beats or something like that. But like I said before, it's just, I just don't think that infect is like your, your glass cannon deck anymore. Even I think that that title may have moved on to decks that are maybe even faster than infect. And if infect's not the fastest deck in the room, what are you doing? It just seems too fragile. Agree. It's kind of scary. It's kind of disappointing actually. Are you heave or believe then? (sighs) I think it's still, a perfectly fine deck. Um, I think that it is telling that it's not showing up in any of these kind of online modern results already because people are wanting it to do well. They are playing it. They are jamming it, but it hasn't really shown up yet. So, I mean, I'm going to stay believe only because I think that it's a perfectly fine deck for a casual spike to run out somewhere, but I don't think it's like a tournament breaker. So I'll say a believer but I'm not a believer in the fact that it's not in the way I wanted to be. All right. Now that we've contorted to that rating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so J- Shane, Shane, for what it's worth, Infect has appeared in basically all the last five O deck lists since. Yeah. But still have like 85 other decks. Yeah. If Scrud can show up, Infect can show up. I don't think that means anything. Not, not to poo poo you, but yeah, I was looking at the history of Infect and yeah, it always shows it, it's, it's always, it's, it's always evolving. We're we're seeing it do reasonably well in 
SCG Invitational qualifiers too. I, I think you're right that this is a deck that uh, it can spike a tournament. Even though it may not be the yeah. best deck in the room, sometimes you'll run hot and the deck is fast and explosive enough. And if the matchups are good, it'll get there. But I don't know if it's if it's as consistent as the other Glass Cannon turn three decks. Yeah, and I will I will reiterate my stance that I think, you know, in a post-Hogak world, I think that people will be moving more towards these mid-range strategies, the grindy decks, and I think that Infect will get even worse. Good night, sweet prince. Well, Shane, thanks for bringing us all down. <laughs> I mean, no, enjoy, if you like Infect, play it. It's better than ever. It's better than it has been for the past four years, probably, so have fun with it. I'm going to make some chamomile tea and lie down. Zach, that's a great idea. I think I'm going to do that too. I'm going to impose a break onto the podcast while the two of us kind of go chill with some chamomile. Constant comet or sleepy time. I'm more of a celestial seasoning, celestial seasoning yeah. kind of oh, guy. Gotta yeah. get celestial seasoning. Oh, when when you guys are, when you guys are in uh, for GP Denver, we'll go to, we'll go to the factory. <gasps> Can we go on the, we'll tour? the tour? Wow, <laughs> I had no idea. Now I'm so excited. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to wind down with some regrettable corrections. Stay with us. Sounds so ominous. So I know our loyal listeners look to us to be a beacon of information, of good ideas, of the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern, but we're human. (laughs) And sometimes we don't get it right. And on this week's Wind Down, we want to talk about some of the cards we misevaluated from Modern Horizons 1 2019. <laughs> there was definitely one card that burns brightest among the set that yeah. we all were heave on, <laughs> and it's actually fantastic. No, no, Zach, Zach, Zach gave it a believe minus, so we will we'll throw him that bone. But yeah, Aria of Flame, we were all apparently quite wrong about. Um, yeah, we... I only give it a believe because it uses verse counters, <laughs> and I like that it used goofy. I'm serious. So, like, thank you for the shout out, but like, I don't. That wasn't my good evaluation <laughs> skills. That was verse counters. Nice. Or I mean, saga. Ver- nice. Verse counter is like text from legends. It really is. That's yeah, yeah, what they exactly. In, in that, add a verse counter. Is that what that little symbol is on MTGO when I cast a spell into Aria? Is that a specifically a verse? It looks like a little looks like a little harp. Yes, those are verse counters, Stan. Yeah, you you would you would have had you would have had your small your small bag of like colored gemstones and you'd stack them on your card. Wow, you know, oh, back man. in the day, yeah, those were damage in Pokemon yeah. back yeah. in the day. Yeah, I was just gonna say. So I played against um, an Is It Phoenix decks that that was running this the other night, and I was like, yeah, okay. Me Let's too. see. And then I was like, I haven't seen this before. The first time that I saw it. And then it was just like, bam, 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 dead. And then game mm-hmm. three of the match, they played two of them against me. My life total no. was at like, yeah, my life total was at 39, I think. Was this and Stan? they killed they killed me, I think, one, two turns later, they killed me That's amazing. with it. That's wild. So you went from, ho, 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 scrub to, oh, no, I'm the scrub. Yep, I went, oh, I did this wrong. <laughs> Dave, did you get the sense that they were possibly sequencing their cantrips or any of their you know cheap spells differently in the early game to have fodder for Aria Flame? Or were your opponents still casting early cantrips aggressively just to start getting through the deck? 
they were definitely just trying to set up the Phoenix plan. And then when the game stalled out and they got to an Aria, all of a sudden, all of the enabler yes. cards that yes. Phoenix had are live. That I think that's what it, it really is. And that's why it's good. That's why Pyromancer's Ascension was also good. But this is just kind of straight to the point. And so I feel like where I thought maybe, you know, and we had a listener write in on Reddit to say, hey, I think you guys are wrong about Aria Flame. And so mea culpa to, to that listener. Um, they talked about it in storm with, with me, but I think that the fact is it just gets you to win instead of having you go through a couple of different hoops, the way that, that pyromancer's ascension did. Yeah. I think, I think we forgot that the just casting cheap spells is something that a lot of decks just do. You know what I mean? We, we, we are, we fell for this once and we fell for it again. It's a, it's easier just to cast spells as opposed to spells that are in your grave for like Dave's looting to. So there's still hoops, but they are, much more affordable hoops with no APR. Yeah, and it's just like it deals damage. That's what it is. Like you want to kill the person to any uh, target, also zero percent yeah. APR financing. Yeah. The fact that it deals damage to any target was also really impressive in my testing with it mm-hmm. as a Phoenix player. I was able to pick off some planeswalkers, pick off a couple little creatures before eventually going off and killing my opponent. Yeah, I didn't realize it was any target at first, and I was playing goblins against it, and I went, "Oh, they don't have lethal. I'm gonna." Oh no! Oh my goodness! I was dead two turns ago, and I didn't realize it. Do you think that Pyromancer Ascension is on the downs tick because of all the graveyard hate that's out there, or do you think that Aria of Flame is actually just better innate value that we fail to recognize? Well, Stan's the one who played it, so I'm going to leave the floor open for him to talk about it. Aria of Flame does have its weaknesses as well, and I think that it forces you to kind of consider when it's safe to cast it. Because sometimes Phoenix does play a little bit like a burn deck. And the last thing your burn deck wants you to do is to suddenly gain 10 life. So, for instance, I lost a game because I had my opponent to, like, 7 or less life. And then I cast it. And then I gave them enough life to kind of rebound. Whereas if I just kind of kept on with the Phoenix plan, I think I would have gotten there. So it does force you to consider what your best options are in a given situation. But if either the coast is clear or... Uh, you're facing down graveyard hate or if i don't know your opponent is at like 20 life already i think it's actually easier to do the work with the aria that ascension would do over maybe the same period of time worth noting however aria's three mana spell ascension you can start working on that on turn two i wouldn't be surprised to see ascension make a comeback that's one of those cards that always seems to come in and out of modern in various decks it's you know Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. I don't know if Arya is a strictly better replacement, but I think for what Phoenix is doing right now, which is casting... Honestly, I think Phoenix is casting more spells than ever right now because it's using Finale of Promise to cast three spells just with three mana easily. I can see Arya Flame doing a lot of work that Pyromancer Ascension just wouldn't do for the same investment. I, I think that's the big reason, Stan, is that with Finale of Promise... Being in there, being able to supercharge your your Aria Flame the next turn is pretty brutal. Where it's just kind of like, okay, I have this down, and now I'm going to do Finale of Promise, and I'm going to do Bolt, you know, Serum Dude, Visions, and and Finale of Promise, and it goes one, two, three damage plus a Lightning Bolt plus draw a card is like is pretty nuts. So we all sort of did not believe that Crashing Quitfalls would be the real oh, deal, and this card is showing up a lot of places. Yeah. So I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. It has seemingly revitalized the Ask for Told archetype. So good for Ask for Told. Good for Crushing Quidfalls. 
It is also being played in some Jun list where they're suspending it on turn one, and it's also a good BBE hit. Yeah. So I don't have to say this card. We we thought that it was slow. They didn't have haste, but turns out two four fours are just that good. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's just like a ancestral recall, right? Where it's just you know, if you can get it down somewhat early and control the game, then you cash it in in four or five turns, and you have three new cards, and you've got a couple four fours on the board. I think you're thinking of Ancestral yeah. Vision, by the way. Thank ancestral you. Recall is <laughs> oh, that's quite much a better. bit more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, an Ancestral Vision was banned at one point. I, I, I like, that's just, oof. That was just people being upset about fairies and modern starting right after fairies rotated out, so. It's not the exact same, but it's similar to a card that was once not legal, and we all discounted it anyway. I don't yeah. know. I, I feel like maybe this one was a little much of a, a little bit of an oversight in our parts. We're sorry. I think we said the word. I think we said the word "unearth" about fifteen times in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I I should be the person to to apologize to unearth. Like I said earlier, I talked. I asked the question: How much better is one extra CMC? Uh, from on earth than claim fame. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I I do think that there are some qualifiers here because if you look at the targets that are actually hitting on earth that are three CMC, they're cards that are new to modern because they were in modern horizons. And the two ones I'm thinking about specifically are Ranger Captain of Eos and Season Pyromancer. For me are the big ones that were the three CMC slot that I've seen with on earth so far. Now I also know that there are uh monastery mentor decks out there that also help you reuse on earth to recycle monastery mentor. So I think that's a pretty big one. And I'm excited to think about the fact that that's uh, actually makes monastery mentor good enough to, to kind of come off the bench and get some play. Um, but I think that the uh, the big thing for me on on Earth after I played with it a little bit was not so much the the mana cost difference, which is big. It's the um, the fact that you can cycle it when you don't need it, and that yeah. I feel like was is enough utility that it actually helps it be at least enough better than than claim fame that it really shouldn't have been in comparison. I I was the only sleeve on an Earth. I knew it was amazing, and that is why I'm the best co-host. Interesting. Perfect. Mm. And then finally... Once again, I was right all along. I was the only sleeve on Hogak. Everyone told me I was crazy. They threatened to kick me off the podcast. I kept saying it's going to be out on turn two sooner than later. Y'all said, no, no, no. I said, yes, yes, hold yes. On, hold on. I'm looking that's, at these that's notes not right what Wait a minute. I'm looking at my notes, and I, I think I said... Uh, no, I said that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought we all said believe, and we didn't think we'd run four. Yeah. Yeah, like the, the fact, like I mean, like I was really naive. Like my my concept was maybe I'll get two in my dredge deck. Yeah, I think this is another case where we didn't package the card with another card in the set of Ultra of Dementia, which to me went. I'm worried about this card. I don't know, but didn't think to put it together with this other card. And I think that's what we're learning about Modern Horizons in general is that there was a lot of inner set synergy that we seem to overlook in terms of a wider field of cards. Yeah, Zach, you're onto something because my first interaction with Skelemental and Unearth was at the pre-release where I was able to draft both cards <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is very good. And at first I thought maybe it's just good for limited, but after today I'm kind sure. of thinking it might be good enough for modern. Yeah, I, I think we doubted how much power they would and synergy they'd pack into one set. And I don't know. They said they didn't want to shake up modern and Hogak aside, I think they shook up modern a little bit. I think they shook it up a lot, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, maybe next week, I would propose, once we can see where the, the data goes. But there's a lot of indications Aww. that uh, 
Modern Horizons has had a profound impact on the format, outside of Hogak even. I'll be out next week, but guaranteed I will be sending you texts about what I do and do not feel. One of our Reddit listeners posted they were pretty negative. They had a negative feeling. They were kind of like, it feels like my format rotated. Mm. And man, yeah, I'm I'm not disagreeing. The fo- I mean, the format feels pretty impacted for sure i'm curious to see how things will shake out once you know everyone's predicting something in hogak bridgevine will get banned but i'm curious to see what the next six months 12 months even look like especially with m20 m20 is going to add some stuff right i want to touch on that rotation comment just real quick i think it's interesting nothing rotated out but a lot of stuff rotated in so like for my decks that i play prison and scred i got maybe one or two new cards and they're still truly vital i don't need those new cards but some other decks have to upgrade so it's just interesting with the way this happened that so many viable cards got pushed in that some decks just have to adopt shane you know what i think is really cool tell me my my friend we waited until the wind down to use the B word. <laughs> We're getting better. The brew? <laughs> it rhymes with Queen Anne. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Well, this was fun. My co-hosts tried to defend themselves, Wait. but if you want the absolute best, most relevant takes on modern, please follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> please rate me his, on apple podcasts with his his inscrutable <laughs> inscrutable twitter handle at medium gallery that's right link in the show notes <laughs> not that to ours to stance <laughs> all right if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, email the dive down at gmail.com, or if you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. If you'd like to support the show, check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and play Horizon Call! And like this one, you don't really, there are games where you can go on the aggro plan and dump your hand and swing for 15 on turn four or whatever. Whoa. Uh Uh-oh. Hopefully he didn't lose his computer. That was a hard stop. Yeah. That was too. Boom. Well, he's he's typing. He just said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah. What happened? Perfect. For the listener at home, we just lost Zach. We just lost Zach in the field. We're not sure if he's still alive.